Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. This is your host, Dan Turchin, Advisor at Insight Finder, the System of Intelligence for IT Operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Each week, we share conversations with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, investors, and journalists who are defining how we'll live and work for the next, say, 30 years. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a like in your app. If you have feedback or guest suggestions, contact me direct, dan at peoplerain.io, people rain like the reign of a king or queen.io. Now, today's guest has the dubious distinction of being our first three-timer on the podcast. Tian and Ray joined us first in October 2019, then again last December. I always enjoy our conversations, particularly the ones that aren't recorded. Uh, Tiernan's an accomplished technology journalist whose work has been featured in publications like ZDNet, The New York Times, Barron's, CNN Money, Fortune, and Bloomberg. He famously launched coverage of machine learning for Barron's way back in 2015 with a cover story called The Cloud Chip. I invited Tiernan back on the show because, as frequent listeners know, we've been exploring AI ethics in recent episodes. We've had some great conversations with the likes of Dr. Mark from Dataflock and others like Chiro and Jacopo from Tuso, now Coveo. Tiernan published an insightful, roughly 10,000-word treatise about six weeks back on the ethics of AI for ZDNet. He also published its companion piece, AI in 60 seconds, which is a paltry 1,200 words, but also includes lengthy footnotes. I read almost everything published about AI and ethics, and I can say with confidence these are two of the best researched, most comprehensive surveys of this evolving field. We will link to both in the show notes. I encourage you to read them. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Tiernan back to the podcast. Tiernan, let's... uh, Let's get started. Why don't you share with our guests, what are you working on these days? And maybe also, how has uh, work life changed for you since uh, we talked last December? Thank you so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's an honor to be on for a third time again. I'm really grateful for the attention you gave to the two articles you mentioned. Uh, these are things that are near and dear to me, which are in general exploring um, the theoretical uh, basic science of AI and related fields to try and, and get to some core questions, the kinds of things that you're interested in as well, uh, about ethics, about how do we understand AI. So I'm spending a lot of my time these days uh, looking more at some of the basic research, the R&D, and looking at even a theoretical work uh, by po- folks both in academia and in industry who are uh, exploring the boundaries of what AI is, what it's capable of, and how we understand it. And as far as work, (laughs) I'm working from the home office, uh, like most people. I'm freelance, so I'm not waiting to go back to a place, but I'm really grateful that in New York City, you can now go to more establishments with your iPad and sit and have a cappuccino in the middle of the day and enjoy the sunshine and, and be amongst people because freelancers get their society from the man on the street 
literally now the person on the street who's um, uh, out and about. So I'm, I'm grateful that things are easing up a little bit in New York. Well, I'm in California. You're in New York. We're in two of the states that were the first to lock down, and now we've fully uh, reopened, which feels pretty good. It's something I always ask you every time we get together is, uh, what's the state of journalism? And then corollary to that, how has the pandemic changed patterns of content consumption? Yeah, we're seeing these big experiments now with Substack uh, and the like, um, all these sort of freelancers turned stars who uh, supposedly are making millions on these platforms. And I guess the jury's still out. There's been some writing, you know, in the New Yorker and such about whether Substack is the answer to journalism. Uh, there is, a, continues to be a dissolution and a breaking apart of mainstream journalism in terms of the economics of it and people trying to reconstitute the model in things like Substack. And I think that we're in a period of great uh, experiment right now. My impression is people are trying lots of different things and um, there's things that are paywall and things that are not paywall and people are interested in, um, consumers are interested in being readers at least for a short while of many things and checking them out. But I, I, I get the sense that there's strong competition for people's time for all of the engagement that they're doing on social, on LinkedIn, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, and just the time spent both producing and consuming on those platforms it has got to be a serious pull from, you know, reading the Financial Times and The Economist and the journal. You've chosen to publish through um, large media uh, content publishers. Um, have you considered shifting your model to a substack or let's say a medium format? Yeah, I have um, the technology letter is a newsletter that I publish, you know, a few times a week about tech and about stocks on Squarespace, which is the startup, the hosting startup that just went public uh, uh, a short while ago, about a month ago. Uh, Squarespace is a 17 year old web hosting firm, and I use them to do a blog. And uh, a bunch of people said to me, you know, you should have. Substack because they take care of everything and they bring you traffic. And that may be true. Uh, for the moment, I'm going it alone with this newsletter format on my own, probably because, you know, probably partly out of vanity because as uh, TJ Rogers, the CEO, former CEO of Cypress Semiconductor used to say, real men have fabs. Uh, for some reason, I feel like I want to own the whole product rather than being a widget in somebody's publishing operation that's not really a publishing operation. Uh, none of us people get any editing for the most part these days. Editing is almost completely dead in journalism, which means, you know, if you look beyond the commercial benefits of a Substack, it makes no difference whether you publish your blog on WordPress or Squarespace or you go on Substack because uh, from an editorial standpoint, you're not going to be helped in terms of your prose. It's all on you. You're, you're, you're going to be a latchkey kid writing and editing yourself and catching your typos no matter where you are. And that's actually true of mainstream journalism. You'll see more and more typos and grammatical errors in top tier publications. So nobody's getting edited like they used to, which means um, from a writing standpoint, uh, you kind of may as well be on your own on some level. Who's left to scrutinize over the facts, let yeah. alone grammatical? issues 
Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's being handled by the community, quote unquote. <laughs> so open source, many eyeballs is people on Twitter saying this is terrible and, and you know, viral rage about it. But that's, that's basically what's happening now is people who would have been the readers who would be below the fold in the comments section are now stepping up in social, I guess, to say um, this article is outrageous. And it happened a little bit too with this feature in the Times, right? About the um, they chased down this Canadian individual who was supposedly a jihadi, and lots of other media had a cluster and and sort of outed the Times on this. So it's, I guess, it's happening by vigilante justice. Yeah, we've crowdsourced the the editorial function. Correct. Well put. We're going to focus mostly on AI AI ethics, which is, I think we'd agree, kind of a loosely coupled. Collection of research mm. topics. Yeah. Um, question for you: What is what does AI ethics mean to you? Insofar as yeah. it is a quote emerging field, sure. and ha- given that it's kind of a loosely coupled group of topics, sure. How do we measure what what it means to exercise responsible use of AI? Uh, so I guess then the first part, Dan, you know, since you have a deeper background than most people on these things, that. A core concept is the objective function, which is the measure of success you're seeking to optimize in an engineering problem. And in AI, traditionally with a learning machine, you optimize the objective function that is your your error, your loss in whatever machine you've built. So you have a goal for the machine to operate to a certain level of reliability, and you just keep refining your machine until it gets there. And that's the kind of classic deep learning, machine learning engineering problem, we've now kind of made this leap in society to thinking we can set all of our problems such as bias in the colloquial sense, uh, prejudice, racism, um, and now things about security, policing, justice, freedom, civil rights as an objective function. Um, We're now kind of looking at Amazon as a question of an employer and labor and career and quality of life. And we're looking at Apple as a healthcare provider. All these companies were sort of all kind of agreeing as a society without formally agreeing that we think we can take these massive problems of human beings, such as justice and equality, and making them make them an objective function in an engineering sense. That's the implicit assumption of what we're all doing, both critics and supporters of AI. And once you do that, it raises a lot of questions about how you define what you think that objective function is, what you think the measure of success is, what do you think is supposed to be the objective function of policing for a safe community versus policing that is just and fair towards all members of society, free of bias, free of prejudice. And I mean, it's just staggering that we've made this leap because I I don't think I think if you went back 20 years, the notion that we were setting an objective function for a deep problem of justice, social justice, would have been like startling to people. But it's kind of where we are now. A few weeks ago, we had a guest who was talking about AI ethics in terms of data rights being the new civil rights. I thought that was a nice um, marriage of two terms that don't typically get used in the same sentence, but thinking about, you know, kind of the big five tech providers are really like the new government. Yes. And who owns the data is the one who's really 
the you know the, the arbiter or you know really the judge and jury. Correct. And you're inside of Twitter. Let's say you generate two hundred and eighty character things on a daily basis. On some level, to take you know play devil's advocate, I as Jack Dorsey own your behavior. I you have created inside of my machine. So where do you exist? You exist in my machine. Which means, what right do you have to your behavior? Um, I think people who are idealistic would like to say it's I'm still me, but we've now gone beyond my photos being appropriated to my behavior is created inside the matrix, if you will. And I mean, on some level, there's a perfectly valid argument for the owner of the matrix to say, "I own you because your behavior was created in here." Never in history. I mean, there yeah. are five dominant platforms that literally manipulate your thinking based on what they put in your feed. Sure. Um, this is just, you know, a cataclysmic shift in how the populace is fed information. Right. And the classic view from um, someone like Roger McNamee, who wrote this wonderful book, Zucked, was that this was a distortion or an aberration of communications that, you know, by manipulating people with the quote voodoo dolls, he documented wonderfully all these techniques, right, that are used by Facebook. But in fact, I think that's kind of got it backwards. The whole point was for you to be inside an ad machine and to be the mechanism by which an ad machine, you know, retrieves the buying signal of advertising. Um, so what can you say? You signed up for that. That's what it was. It was never supposed to be mainly about you as a person, you know, subsidized with a little advertising it was to capture the advertising signal. So, you know, that's what it is. So as your publicist, mm -hmm. uh, I know that AI will never replace Tiernan Ray. What you oh, do is I unique, the, the synthesis of, of thoughts, but uh, thought experiment, <laughs> when will AI be just as good at writing headlines, say, or summarizing long form content or maybe even reading the news instead of news anchors. Is that something that, as a journalist, do you see that in the, sure, in the headlights? For sure. I mean, people are furious about um, clickbaiting, which means a headline that plays upon SEO. Basically, they the editors are looking at what monetizes. And so a machine should be better at monetizing against a machine. If the machine knows how Google search analytics um, turns things, surfaces things, then you should be able to build a better machine to design a headline that will play uh, well uh, against those uh, SEO dynamics. So sure, to the extent that people are already kind of become becoming used to a headline written not to communicate, but to play the game of SEO, then it's just a short step to have a machine do that better um, you know, just like, uh, you know, AlphaGo was better at uh, the sort of fairly constrained dynamics of a full information game like chess. You know, this is at some point a fairly full information game of SEO. Why not have a machine do it? Polish your crystal ball. Is that two years out? Is it five years out? Is it 10 years out? Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in play now because with the economics of journalism, um, it becomes more and more an incentive to find uh, ways to amplify and disintermediate that editorial function to put in place something uh, that is an SEO programmatic 
tool uh, to play that game. Sure. In your article, you reference Margaret Mitchell, mm -hmm. who was uh, famously fired as an AI ethicist at Google. Okay. And she posed the question, what can AI do to bring about a better society? How would you answer that? Well, if I was optimistic, I'd say the best thing it can do is to fix all the broken software because, as Andreessen said, you know, the world's being eaten by software. And right now, it seems to be eaten by really bad software, um, stuff that promotes ransomware, stuff that is easily exploited. And in theory, a, a lot of that could be cleaned up with a program that does a better job than a human programmer at finding the faults. So I like to think that in a narrow case, AI could fix uh, all the broken algorithms that are now threatening, you know, the the food production system, the energy system, the transportation system in, in catas potentially catastrophic ways. Uh, that's the po the positive possibility. I think the the negative is we really need to get back to this question of objective function and what we think that the machine's supposed to be doing. If you were to say the convolutional neural network can do better at developing a visual computing ability that could be a useful component for a society that saves the big questions of social justice and policing, for example, to human deliberation. I'm not sure we want to make that an engineering objective function. So I still believe that that issue at the top of this discussion is the issue, which is what you decide society is going to give to the computer systems to resolve. I think one of the central conundrums that's fueling this you know, merging AI ethics space is the, um, the need to reconcile that AI technology can obviously be used to harm. And I'll give one example of Clearview AI uh, had, was being used for facial recognition by police departments based on biased data and, you know, doing all kinds of uh, unanticipated things to target um, underrepresented uh, minorities uh, in the field of policing. Obviously something that no nobody wants and that we, we can't tolerate it. And we've made it clear to Clearview and to other technologies like that, that we won't, you know, that, that that's not acceptable. That's an easy one. But I think it's important for us also to consider the fact that there are dangerous criminals that were taken off the streets mm -hmm. that might not have otherwise. And so that there are lives to be saved and there are lives at risk. How do we wrestle with the fact that AI is designed with good intentions, but if we're not wary of its potential to inflict harm, it can go awry? How, how do you reconcile those two uh, extremes? Yeah, it's a great example, Dan. I, I suspect that people. People with responsibility should also be the ones with authority. So, for example, in the case of Clearview and other systems used for policing, I would imagine there are challenges currently underway or to come in the court system. And some of these methods, these algorithms will be uh, evidence submitted to trials and there will be a discussion about what's allowed and there will be precedent set for what can be used in a criminal trial. And the reason I say that is I suppose people in court systems and by extension, duly elected representatives, to the extent they have responsibility for the consequences of uh, judgment, incarceration, 
should be ones who are in a position to have some authority about how these tools are used, not to absolve the average citizen. When you sit on a jury, you are responsible for someone's life potentially. And so you should be concerned as a citizen about how this is being used. Uh, that's to say, as a person who, you know, writes news articles and, and opines occasionally, I don't have requisite responsibility to command authority to make a decision. It's my impression that all kinds of areas of society that are going to take responsibility need to need to be the ones to decide, are these tools going to be used in health? And in a small sense, there's just going to be legal precedent. Can we really submit a facial recognition system that scanned a book of uh, known felons to identify this individual in this crime? Is that acceptable? Is it legal? And, and that's that's my understanding is that still uh, the jury's still out. Famously, Amazon's AI identified, I think it was about a fifth of members of Congress right. uh, as being uh, known criminals. Right. <laughs> nice. uh, there's a perfect example of a company that in that case had no responsibility, meaning Amazon was not going to be in any way up for the consequences uh, of, let's say, potentially destroying people's lives. They were up for potentially crowdsourced outrage, but, but it, they were not in a position to take responsibility for what happens if you misidentify someone in the sense that potentially judges or, um, or police officers or someone could be responsible for a mistake. So that's a perfect example of kind of cavalier use of technology where you don't have, you take authority, but you don't have responsibility. I like the framework that if you have responsibility, then you, you, you should have authority. That makes sense. I continue to think that the notion that the, that the traditional form of government is appropriate to regulate these new technologies is just antiquated. And particularly, you know, if you look at the much uh, mocked uh, recordings of Congress interrogating Zuckerberg, I mean, it's just comical to think that that's where that's the seat of power where laws about AI are being made. But that does beg the question. So if we're moving into kind of a, you know, a post-government you know, need for regulation of technologies like AI, is it the big five that, that should have authority for regulating the technology that they create? Or how do, how do, we, should, how do we monitor the monitors? Yeah, they should not have authority for grading their own homework, so to speak. They will, however, I think increasingly play that role by kind of elbowing their way in and saying, we are the ones who built it, we understand it. And so we want several seats at the table to regulate these things. It doesn't seem like that's going away because, um, you know, we have a literacy problem, Dan. Most people, including elected representatives, have no idea what you know about AI and how it functions. They don't understand the machine. There's a literacy gap. And so who else are you gonna to turn to to understand the machine that you're trying to regulate? It's the ones who built it who understand it. Uh, if you had suddenly, you know, all of society's big questions being driven by Shakespeare's sonnets, uh, you know, you may be able to read Shakespeare, but you probably wouldn't understand it. So you bring in a Shakespeare expert and they would be dominating the conversation. I, I mean, it's a huge literacy gap. And so the ones who are most literate are naturally going to have an outsized role in saying, we're going to quote unquote, help you to regulate these things. I've advocated in the past for kind of a social form of regulation of AI that might look something like, you know, restaurants get scored, you know, that their hygiene gets scored 
And, you know, the public can decide whether, whether or not to eat in a restaurant, you know, based on their hygiene score. Similarly, I think algorithms need to have a hygiene score. And I think rather than um, any kind of government, you know, FDA, et cetera, you know, attaching a score to these algorithms, I think it should come from the users who are impacted by the algorithms. Is that, is that a fanciful notion or do, do you think that kind of thing could, could evolve? I love the idea, but I don't know quite what the users know because, again, I think most people are illiterate and I don't think they understand what they're dealing with. And as you know, people in deep learning, as you know, Norbert Wiener pointed this out 60 years ago in his uh, book on cybernetics and in a follow-up article in Science Magazine, even the people building the machine don't fully understand on long timescales what they're building and what the consequences are. So if they don't understand fully what the consequences are, then for an average individual who has no idea what deep learning is, um, it's, it's sort of does not clear to me how they could ever rate the system because even if they could understand today kind of what it's doing, could they really say what the long range consequences are of it being set in motion? where there are timescales in which this, uh, outcomes are unexpected and surprising? I think one of the uh, bedrock principles of AI ethics is that whenever an algorithm and some data was used to make a decision on your behalf, right. um, it's transparent. Just right. literally the fact that a decision was made on your behalf in an automated way. Right. Um, is there such a thing as you know, um, somehow requiring any software that uses AI to disclose yes. that the decision was made and then soliciting feedback from the person whose decision, the, who the decision was made on, on behalf of. So like in, in other words, yeah. you don't need to be a technologist to know that if your loan, you know, uh, uh, application was rejected, you know, and you feel that was unfair, you can at least share feedback about how the algorithm was. Uh, sure. Again, I wonder, I love the idea. I wonder on what basis I as an individual would say something because I have been up against systems that are, you know, banking systems or whatever, where it was a black box and the outcome was I wasn't happy. But if you say, even if you could solve the problem of transparent AI, so to speak, which is a technical problem in itself of having the machine describe what it's doing and how it arrived at its outputs, even if you could solve that still challenging technical problem, then on what basis would I, again, as an individual, be able to assess the merits of that explanation? Because I could imagine I would be upset and want a voice. And it's very fine to have a voice, but if you're illiterate and you don't know anything, then what are you going to have a voice about? It's just, I'm upset. I mean, I know I'm upset and I know that I feel I have I should have justice, but uh, I, I just keep thinking we're up against this problem that people really don't understand what the technology is. And so every measure for them to be involved is going to be stymied by the fact that they have no idea what's going on. They just, they just don't. So it's become almost just acceptable in the field of AI ethics to expect AI to be, quote, explainable. Right. And um, I don't think we've spent enough time talking about what explainability actually means beyond kind of the platitude that it's better for it to be explainable than not explainable. Um, in fact, just this week, a company called Fiddler.ai announced a $32 million Series B round of funding to make AI explainable. Nice. Um, 
if you've got the keys to the kingdom and, and someone says, you know, tell us what yeah. AI explainability means or what sure. it should do technically, what does that, what does that look like? Yeah, especially since the data, as it said, the data is the data, Dan. Probably what we make of it is in the in the model, let's say. So in the hyperparameters, in the weights are the pattern that we think. If the pattern's not in the data, the data exists like snowflakes exist in nature. When you submit them to observation up close, you see beautiful patterns. So we're always behind the machine we've built to detect what we then sort of, you know, in a kind of superstitious way ascribed to nature, but it exists in our perception. The beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Our information is in the eye of the scanning machine and the neural network. And so we're really explaining what we've already got, which is we built this machine. It, as they say, boils the data and it creates information as a result. Ta-da! Well, okay, so we've built a machine and, and where are you going to go from there? All we know is is we're we're taking an input and producing an output, and based on that, we have a regression model, or, or we have some kind of model that tells us this is how we're going to solve policing, or this is how we're going to solve loan applications. Some people understand it, some people don't, uh, and that seems to be the main divide. You went pretty deep on this in your article, which I really appreciated. It was more than just the the survey course and. On the topic of explainability, is it even feasible to take a deep neural net and have any one or thing or piece of software unpack what went into an automated decision, you know, across potentially millions of layers of a neural net to be able to explain the outcome and, you know, justify how the inputs relate to the outputs? It's still challenging to do that. In practice, and I suspect that we need to implicit in there is an assumption. You're never going to say, How did it find this out? Again, about the data, the data is the data. You're going to say, How did it transform this into this output? And so it's better for everyone if we start in society talking about machines that are transforming our reality. They're producing from whatever we submit pictures of dogs and cats a score. So we're filling the world with products that we call scores and the probability scores. And sometimes they're multivariate. Sometimes they're a simple binary regression, but we're filling the world with scores. And we've decided that's how we want to fill up the world. And if we look in that sense, maybe we could start to have a discussion about you built this thing to take this input and transform it into this output. You took people and you transformed them into a score, you know, criminal or not criminal. That's maybe useful because to me, that's more... In this case, it, it pays to be really literal. That's what you're doing. You've created a score out of the raw material of people's identities uh, or people's images. So you're filling the world with scores. Um, is that what you want to do? Maybe. I mean, to your point, maybe it helps security, safety, all kinds of things. But it would at least be maybe better to be literal. And then you could talk about the internals of that machine. How does it transform? How does it um, you know, come up with an average uh, using uh, the data distribution? and sort of be a bit more precise about what's actually going on. I think the opportunity for Fiddler and others is it's almost a UX problem. It's taking inputs that can be very complicated yeah. and hyperparameters that are very complicated and, right. and somehow trying to abstract out the things that are human understandable to those 
who are impacted by these decisions. I mean, does that seem like the right way to approach the problem of explainability? I suspect it's like Schrodinger's cat. By the time you've touched it, it's dead um, or it's alive, but it's not the thing. It's not, it's not the uncertainty. There's a probability in there, which is the machine in flight in, in, in motion, which is really its existence. Um, once you've tapped it out kind of through a side channel to explain it, um, you've created another thing, which probably isn't the machine itself. It's probably this thing you've presented to kind of make people feel better. I question whether that's really getting closer to what's going on. I suspect what's going on is not explainable on some level, or it has to be explained in terms that you have to come to um, kind of as a person, as a human, orient yourself to. You have to start to understand how a machine can formulate probabilities and how that is itself the product, not what is explainable to you in colloquial terms. I mean, you can't, you can't understand a car entirely by analogy to moving your feet. You have to at some point understand an engine and how it moves and torque. You have to understand these concepts. So you have to become accustomed to a machine because it's a, a manufactured artifact. There's no way around it. It's yeah. the same for AI. It's a good analogy. Thankfully, you don't have to be able to explain to a cop how an, an internal combustion engine works in order to have a license to drive. You don't, but you know certain things that are part of the danger of driving in terms of um, things that can happen to the car, damage to the engine block. Uh, if it's an internal combustion engine, you know that there are dangers of sparks and fire. All these things you know without building a car, just as a driver, that you're careful. And when you go to the, you know, every time you go to the mechanic, you know, you get kind of a condescending uh, explanation of what you didn't know and you learn a little more. But you do have to learn some things before you use these tools and then you learn as you use them. Now you reference uh, the work of scholars like uh, Vinay Prabhu, who's the, who's the chief scientist at Unify ID, right. who posed this, this intriguing uh, phrase that we're witnessing potentially an industrialized invasion of privacy. Talk to us about the ethics of how data is collected and how can we mitigate the potential impact of this, what I think is a very appropriate term, the industrialized invasion of privacy. Well, the, it's funny because he was talking, um, Prabhu was talking about, for example, Clearview and others appropriating images from Flickr. And they were images that were appropriated being, by being scraped. And so nobody ever gave consent. On some level, everyone has become an exhibitionist and their images are out there unless they're password protected. And so there's a lot of stuff that can be scraped. And uh, maybe even if that's illicit behavior that needs to be prosecuted, you could ask about, you know, the, the kind of cavalier posting of your information uh, on the Internet in ways that can be appropriated easily and what the uh, judgment is involved by every human being in doing that, that you've made yourself exposed. So I, I think there's some discussion that has to happen about just people wanting to be exhibitionists in the modern world. Um, but what he was also talking about there is sort of the creation again of an objective function that then subsumes everything to it. So you use images of people to come up with a beauty score and the beauty score is used for smartphones to create the algorithm that will beautify your your selfie and so in this case it's like once you've set the objective function which itself is kind of weird like the beauty score 
then everything is grist for the mill. You just feel entitled to grab everything you can. And so it, it's another, uh, nobody outside of, let's say, the individual research groups or the companies developing these got a vote. Maybe that would be a good place to start is, um, should you be able to create these objective functions? But that is clearly what drives the bus. You set an objective function and everything else is, is material you use and, and you justify, well, we got to train this thing. But nobody ever told you outside of, let's say, a corporation, we want you to develop a beauty function, you know, and, and we're willing to have you appropriate any amount of material to do that, to train that network. So what's better, scraping images from, let's say, Flickr yeah. or training the world's AI on, let's say, ImageNet, which is yeah. a curated data set? You could argue that one either way. You could, and, and there's a third possibility, Dan, which is Facebook recently came up with this, you know, I guess sort of entirely ethical data set where they asked actors to pose for images and for video, and they used that as their training set. So it was all these people were paid, they were given a release, they were told explicitly what was going to be done with it, so that the machine would have images of people with no unethical means of appropriation. Uh, and it's possible also to imagine in the future that you will have entirely synthetic data sets where training comes from, I guess, let's say physics-based uh, com composition of human images. So th there's other possibilities as well. I think that you're going to have, continue to have, as long as people are exhibitionists, you're going to have appropriation of their information and you're going to have it used for objective functions to which nobody ever signed off other than the person who's making it. I got to get us to a stopping point. I know it always feels like we're, a, we're just getting started and this is a, this is a weighty topic, that's good. but uh, uh, I got to get one last question in for you and that's sure. uh, fast forward five years. So mm -hmm. you and I are having a, you know, a, a more mature version of this conversation. What are we talking about in five years? Yeah. I hope Dan that, we will be talking about the flowering of blockchain as a means of people to reassert some individual control. There is a nascent movement to have blockchain be a way that people can, to your original question, own their data, that it is not inside of the machine. And I imagine it's sort of as a protocol, that's a new protocol of layer you know, four through seven of the internet, where it's, um, people's personal protocol and anything that is extracted has to be negotiated with them to get their permission. You can't just be an advertising machine that immediately owns their cookies and their behavior. I hope that's something that in a few years from now will be something that has emerged that um, you say, wow, that's really a force now is something blockchain based uh, sort of similar that is restoring some control, maybe to individuals. That's a great idea. I haven't heard that before, but the idea of introducing a personal protocol top of the yeah, traditional you know, you networking have, stack. You have HTTP for reaching a URL, um, for, right? Why not have an individual's personal protocol where every, instead of do you accept cookies, every single interaction has to be negotiated with the person holding all the keys to it's a completely opt-in, right? You, you have to ask them to do anything, uh, meaning you, the, the, the app, the entity, the server, 
um, and every person gets to be opt-in first and say, do I really want to do this? In five years, will you as a consumer know when a decision, an automated decision has been made for you? You will not know because it will be so multifarious. It will be in so many places. Uh, it will be in so many algorithms that you have no idea. It will be, it's just like spam. Who knows? Who knows what's in this sandwich? Sounds rather dystopian. But, uh... <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but at least we can have fun conversations about it. I'll tell you what, in five years when we're having this conversation, maybe uh, it, it will look rather dystopian looking backward five years, but hopefully looking forward five years from then. I know. We'll, we'll I hope this looks like, yeah, overly negative and dour at the time. And so, oh, it's always much, much better than we thought. Yeah. Well, Tierney, you're our first three-timer on the show and uh, certainly yes. uh, hope you'll come back and For sure. so much more of this discussion to, to be having and love having this conversation with you. Likewise. Thank you. Cool. Great job. Anything that uh, you'd like to share with the audience in terms of how to follow your work or uh, uh, any, any, anything uh, like to share in terms of social properties or how they, how they can uh, get in touch with you? I just check out, uh, if you have a moment, thetechnologyletter.com www.thetechnologyletter.com uh, if you have any interest in business technology tune in as always great catching up Thanks, and uh we're gonna wrap up for today this is uh dan turchin your host of ai and the future of work always great talking to tiernan and back next week with another fascinating guest <laughs>